And we are live. All right. Romans chapter 8. Actually, we're going to be in Romans chapter 7. I know we started late. I won't try to keep you too late, but we were having good theological conversations, so that's always good. All right. Make sure we're live. Yes. All right. Here we go. Um, What we're going to do today is we're going to go backwards so that we can go forwards. All right. So let me explain what we've been doing. We have been uh, dealing with a very important section in Romans chapter 8. And Romans chapter 8 has dealt with this idea that now that we are Christians, our life is, we'll, we'll say it this way, our life is in the Spirit. The Spirit of God is inside of us. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, there are lots of claims made throughout church history and even in modern day Christianity that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit does certain things in us. And and we've looked at, I don't know, how many have we looked at so far of the things? I don't know if you have your notes. Uh, we have looked at a total, I don't know, I've got a list of 10 things that Christians claim that because we have the Holy Spirit um, inside of us, it does. We've talked about the indwelling of the Spirit comes to a soul dead in, in sin and creates new life. So we've talked about uh, regeneration. Right? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is, produces regeneration. That the indwelling of the Spirit confirms to a believer that he belongs to the Lord and is an heir of God. All right? We've talked about that one, and that one is even problematic, but we've talked about that one. Uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit places the believer basically into Christ or into the body of Christ. We've talked about that one. We talked about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit produces spiritual gifts, whatever we think they may be. They come from the Holy Spirit. Uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, this is one that people claim, helps us understand and apply Scripture. And we're very, we, we remember we call that into question uh, because uh, one of the passages used is that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. And clearly, 2,000 years, that's not the case. So we believe that is specifically a promise for the writers of the New Testament. Remember, we talked about that one. And then the big one, the one that everyone talks about and talks about, and I'm going to skip one, is that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit empowers us to do what? Yeah, that the Holy Spirit supposedly gives us power to live out a godly life. Now, the problem with that is everyone claims that and and it gets into this really broken idea, right? Hey, you have the power to do it, but no one's going to do it perfectly, well, if no one's going to do it perfectly, then that means the power that we supposedly have is a limited power that only gets us to what? 50% obedience, 60% obedience, 70% obedience. You can't say, hey, everyone has the power to live a righteous life, and then no one lives a righteous life, and then you make an excuse why no one does. Either if no one does, then that would seem to call into question what? Either one, you don't actually have the Holy Spirit, so therefore you are not saved. Or two, your understanding that we have the Holy Spirit and it supposedly gives us power is wrong. Correct? You only have a couple of options. Either you have the power. You can't say you have the power, but you're not going to do it perfectly because that calls into question the power. So we have a major problem with this claim. And we've been talking about it now for, it seems like, forever. I've done episode after episode. I've ta- I don't know how many podcast episodes I've done t- talking about this. So what, here's what we're going to do. I believe one of the major issues in people interpreting Romans 8 is, an, is they ignore the end of Romans chapter 7. So the only thing I want to do this morning is go back 
and once again reestablish the truth Paul taught at the end of Romans chapter 7. If we don't get that right, all of our understanding of Romans 8 it becomes convoluted. Does that make sense? So I, I know... Look, there's, I know we wouldn't need to finish that list of all the things that the Holy Spirit supposedly does, but we're just, I'm gonna, we're gonna go back to Romans. We're gonna pick up a part of chapter seven. We're gonna read to the conclusion, and then we're gonna consider two historic commentaries on Romans seven. I'm gonna offer some thoughts, and then that's it. If it's, if this is way short, it's way short. I know everyone's gonna laugh when I say that, but that's the, I just wanna make sure we have to have this down. We have to have this down. I, I did a podcast episode just the other day uh, where, um, I don't know the pro, the pro, oh, it's from the pastor in Dallas, Texas, um, talking about, as a Christian, you have the power to overcome sin. You have the power to do it. Well, well then, if that's the case, then what should we see within Christianity? Sinlessness, right? Sinlessness. So do we have the power or don't have the power? It's like... I, I, and it always comes down to you have the power because you have the Holy Spirit. You have the power. Or as the, the that sermon I've been reviewing on the Sermon on the Mount, he said it, I think, six times. Jesus came to make it possible for you to live according to the Sermon on the Mount. That's why Jesus came. He came to make it possible for you to live according. Well, if he made it possible, then that means it is possible. So if no one does it, then what's wrong? Either it wasn't possible, and we misinterpreted that, or nobody saved. And nobody ever wants to deal with that. We just love to, it's like Christianity, a lot of, I remember I've talked about it so many times, there's a Christianity we sell, and then there's the Christianity that we live. The Christianity we sell is like, hey, you get saved, you get all this power, you can stop this, you can stop this, you can stop this. And and then what do we see in the reality? Christians falling into sin, we see sexual sin, we see marriages fall apart, we see this, we see that. Well, Why? Because the reality is different than what we sell. We shouldn't be selling something that isn't real. So we got to question our theology on this. Hey, well, you got power. You got power. Everyone, and, and I don't, I, what I, blows my mind is how Christians sit there and say amen to it and then realize when they get in their car, by the time they get in their car and drive home, they're already demonstrating. They're get, yelling at the kid, getting upset, fighting with the wife. And you're like, what happened? What happened? I mean, the kids should say, hey, mom and dad, the pastor said, you got power. Show me that power and be good parents. Show me that power. You would never provoke me to anger. You would, you would love me the way you're supposed to love me. Come on. Now, of course, the parent could flip it on the kid really quick. Right? Hey, you got the power to be an obedient kid, right? Honor your mother and father. You will do it perfectly. But isn't it weird that Christians hear that in church and they can't catch on to the fact that they don't even live it from the parking lot of the church to their front door of their house? So some people start realizing it doesn't work. And what happens to them? They think it doesn't work. They become discouraged. And like this is, or they just, or they think they're not saved. And, and it's, it, there's, there's got to be a better way. And I just think we sell this power, 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 power so much. And nobody sees the power. Unless you pretend. 
We were just talking about it between Sunday school when we dealt with the Niagara Creed in Sunday school. Between now, talking about how Christianity always says that, hey, if you're truly saved, then this is what you will do. And they give this test and then everyone says, yes, that's true. That's the test. But then nobody nobody in the pew ever really applies the test to themselves. If they really did, what would be their conclusion? I'm not saved. And so then what do they say? Well, you're not going to do it perfectly. Well, then... So, so what do you have to do in order to pass the test? Nobody ra- asked that question. So we've been, I mean, we've talked about this. We've been, we've been working on this for, it seems like three, four years now, working on this, trying to figure all of this out. So I believe Romans 7.25 is the passage, is the verse that everyone misses. So let's go to Romans 7. This deals with so many issues we've been talking about. If you've been listening to all the podcast episodes, you know we've been talking about this, talking about this, talking about this, over and over and over, all right? Here we go. All right, let's go to uh, Romans chapter 7. Remember Romans chapter 7 told us all the things the law did and what the law could not do, right? And then uh, please note uh, Romans 7, 14. We're going to go all the way back and we're going to flow right into 25. All right, I know you're like, wait, we're in Romans 8, but I just think we have to get this down. Romans 7, 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not, for what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. Now, that's the Apostle Paul. Now, again, some preachers have said he was lost when he wrote that, that he was referring to when he was lost, but it still doesn't make any sense. Why would a lost person be like, I'm trying to serve God, but I, can't, I keep falling. That doesn't make sense. What is he saying? The things he wants to do, he doesn't do, and the things he doesn't want to do, he does. Why? Now, the reason we can all we should all say amen to that is because that describes who? Every one of us. Right? Now, what does it say? If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. See, now acknowledging that sin dwells in you, that's just that's the reality, right? For I know that in me, that is what? In my flesh dwelleth what? No good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. What is he describing in verse 18? An internal conflict. There's two things going on. Where is the will coming from? We are being regenerate. We have the Holy Spirit in us. There should be now a desire. There should be, we, we, our mind is open to the things of God, right? We, we are spiritually alive. Being spiritually alive to God means what? We are aware of His holy standard. We know that we should want to pursue it, but what do we find inside of us? A sinful nature that is incapable of doing what God demands. Or, as Paul says, the things I want to do, I do not have the things I don't want to do. I do. But there's something in him that's giving him a desire to do it. And there's, there's something in him telling him not to do it. That's, that's salvation. Now there we can say salvation should give you a different perspective, a, diff, a, diff, a different desire. I think we can all agree with that, yes? I mean, before I was saved, I didn't care what I did. Right? After I was saved, I at least cared. Okay? Right? 
I mean, I mean, before I was saved, I wasn't like, well, you know what? I don't know if I should really do that. I, I think God would be displeased if I do that. I, don't, I didn't really ask those questions, okay? In fact, I never asked those questions because I did not care. Agreed? All right, now, verse 19. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Are, do you see him repeating himself? What is he trying to get across? There's something going on. He's caught in a trap. What, what do I do? What do I, I, I want to do it. I, we, all, we, we can all say, amen, Paul. Been there, been there, been there, been there, been there. But yet, Christianity comes along and says, no. You got power. You got power. So stop it. I mean, how many times? I, 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 I mean, I could go from sermon to sermon to sermon to sermon on Romans, and then you hear the same thing preached over and over and over and over and over. You have the power, you have the power, you have the power, you have the power, you have the power. Yet the Apostle Paul is saying, things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't, I, well, what is it? Where's the power, Paul? You got the power. Just stop it. Just stop it. And I, and I, I get so, I, it gets so old hearing the same thing over and over. Okay, verse 21, I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. That, that seems to make sense. For I delight in the law of God where? The inward man. He delights in the law of God inwardly. What, what would create a delight in the law of God? Salvation, the Holy Spirit. That creates in me a desire to delight in God's word. I should delight in that. I should desire it. But what does he already acknowledge? What's still with him? Sin. Look what he says. But I see another law in my members. What does he see? Now, this has to be a saved person, right? Can't be an unregenerate person. Yeah, you wouldn't see that. But what does he see in him? Another law and warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. He sees a fight. He's experiencing a fight. And this fight, you can hear, you can almost hear the emotion. He's describing you. I want to do it and I don't do it. And I, 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 I delight in the law of God. And I, I have this and I'm fighting and I'm fighting and I'm fighting. And then all of a sudden, what does he scream out in the next? You can almost hear it as a scream. Oh, wretched man that I am. And then what's his hope? Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He, he wants to know, who's going to deliver me from what? The body of this death. Because what, as long as he has this body, what's always going to be present? He's got something in him that wants God. That's the spirit. That's a renewed mind. But in his body, there's still something that won't go away. Now, I know, there, I mean, we could, we could pull up some of MacArthur's writings on this, almost teaching the idea of the eradication of the old man. Well, I, that's why MacArthur can hold a lordship view, because if you believe in the eradication of the old man, then you can say everyone should pass the test that he gives you to prove your salvation. Well, I don't believe in the eradication of the old man. If I don't believe in the eradication of the old man, well, then any test would become very problematic because the old man is still going to be there. Do you see what, what's required? You need the eradication of the old man. And Paul clearly doesn't believe in the eradication of the old man. I, I don't... I don't see how. We get that, all right? Now, what does he say? Verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So what's his only hope? Christ. What's his only hope? Christ. Well, his only hope is Christ. And look what happens. So then, with the mind, I myself do what? Serve the law of God. But with the flesh, the law of sin. Now, that's a reality we just got to deal with. Whatever theology you have, you cannot deny that. Now, I've read commentary after commentary tries to explain this away and the most absurd things possible, but we have to deal with it. So, what, what, let's try to summarize what has Paul just described. He's described a person that with what? The mind, something inside, serves what? Law of God. And when it says serves the law of God, it obviously desires it, loves it, wants to obey it, but what happens somewhere else? In the flesh, he serves what? The law of sin, right? Is that what he says? The law of sin, am I correct? Right? So, you, you got to deal with that reality. Is he saying that there's some power now to stop it? No, he seems to be saying it's a reality. So what's his hope? Christ. His hope is not in trying to, uh, no. And so what, what's, and then immediately in the next verse, what does he say? Chapter 8, verse 1. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. What's the hope? Even though this is the reality, there is no condemnation. Why is there no condemnation? Because he's in Christ. Well, how can there be no condemnation if you're serving with your body the law of sin? Because of an imputed righteousness that's accredited to your account. Does that make sense? So let's go through, let's look at two commentaries on Romans 7.25. I want you to listen carefully to these two commentaries, all right? All right, here we go, Romans 7.25. And these are all um, early commentaries. I don't have dates for them, but they're all early in church history. All right, here we go. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law, law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Now, that's what it says, right? Everybody got that? So again, with the mind, he does, what does he serve? Law. law of God. With the flesh, what does he serve? Law of sin. Law of sin. All right? So you, you, if you want, now Stacy criticized my art, art attempt last week. She criticized it. I'm still very hurt by it. I'm seeking counseling this week to get over my hurt feelings. Okay? But if you were to draw a circle, <laughs> right? And you were to put... Me, in the middle, referring to yourself, right? You would have, above that me, you would have law of God and law of sin. And both are reality in whom? You, if you are converted. If you're saved. Both are realities. To deny that reality is insane. Does the presence of the Holy Spirit seem to do away with this? It doesn't. Now, look at how this commentary handles it, okay? Listen carefully, all right? So then with the mind, what does the mind serve? What does the flesh serve? Law of sin. Now, the, law, the flesh would seem to indicate what? What we do! Right? I mean, I, I, I don't know what else the flesh would be referring to. The mind seems to be what we, what we are desiring, what's going on internally. No, nobody can see. I can't see... If, if, if Bobby truly loves God and seek it, I can't see that, but I can see the law of sin being acted out in the flesh, right? So that would be very easy. That's how, do we not see this with David? Yeah. He's called a man, 
didn't look like it. Right? Now, I know that people say, well, that was the Old Testament. That doesn't count. Okay, well, Paul is making it count in the New Testament, okay? Paul is making it count in the New Testament. Right? Because the only difference with Paul, when he says the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do, he doesn't list the things he did. So we convince ourselves, well, it probably wasn't anything major. Right? We, it could be. But we don't know. It was obviously bad enough for him to feel like, you know, I'm just saying that, like, like because he doesn't list, I almost wish he would have listed it, because if he would have listed it, people would have been like, oh, that's it, that's it, we're not going to read the Apostle Paul anymore. No, we, it's amazing how we overlook the sins people commit in the Bible really quick, right? Like, we have no problem with our children memorizing scripture written by a serial adulterer, polygamist, and an idolater named Solomon. Anybody have a problem with it? Hey, Proverbs, put a proverb a day, keeps the devil away. Proverbs written by a man who was a serial adulterer, polygamist, and an idolater. Woohoo! Yeah, woohoo! That's great. Now, what, what, what? Now, the, the thing is, we, we still believe that scriptures are inspired, but the point is, what do they demonstrate? What does every person in the Bible demonstrate? They're sinners! Right? That's the one that, like, sin is the one thing that proves Christianity true. <laughs> right? Because no matter what we try to do, no matter what we try to do to fix the sin problem in society, we can never fix it. Right? So, just, I want to make sure you get that again. What, where, the, the, where does the mind? Law of God. Where's the flesh? Now, listen. Here's how the commentary breaks it down. I myself. I myself. Right? Now, listen, why does he say, I myself, all right? Uh, because here, here's why, why. Paul is not referring to another person, all right? He does not represent another man in this discourse of his. For this is a phrase used by him when he cannot possibly be understood of any but himself. In other words, what he's trying to say is Paul is referring to himself. He's not talking about some hypothetical person. Paul's like, me, myself. I'm the one who, in my mind, in my flesh. So Paul's making it clear he's referring to himself. In other words, any attempt to, to try to get out of there would not make any sense. All right? Okay. Um, he divides himself, as it were, into two parts. The mind, by which he means his inward man, his renewed self, and the flesh, by which he designs his, his carnal the carnal person or the carnal uh, self that was sold under sin and hereby he accounts for his serving at different times two different laws. The law of God written on his mind and in the service of which he delighted as a regenerate man and the law of sin to which he was sometimes carried captive and it should be taken notice that he does not say, I have served... He does not say, I have served, as referring to his past state of unregeneracy, but I serve in his present state. All right? Is that, that's very important, correct? All right? Um, and he says, I serve as respecting the present state as a believer in Christ, made up of flesh and spirit, which as they are two different principles regarding two different laws, 
Add to all of this that this last account the apostle gives of himself and which agrees with all he had said before and confirms the whole was delivered by him after he had with so much faith and fervency given thanks to God and a view of his future complete deliverance from sin which is a clinching argument and proof that he speaks of himself in the whole discourse concerning indwelling sin as a regenerate person. Hear that again? He speaks of the reality of indwelling sin in a regenerate person. If you are regenerate, what is inside of you? If you are a regenerate person, what is inside of you? Sin. And does that, and does he indicate anywhere that you have some supernatural power now to overcome it? That's what Christians continue to claim. That because you have the Holy Spirit, now you can overcome it. Clearly not. Why would he be, why would he be saying he still serves it? Right? He says, I serve it. He doesn't say, I served, but he serves it presently. So what is, what is Paul saying? In him, two things are going on. So, but why is there therefore now no condemnation? Because he's in what? Christ Jesus. What, what's his hope? Not his practical righteousness, but his imputed righteousness. Everybody got that? All right. Now, this next commentary may sound like it's going in a little different direction. It's a little longer. Just listen carefully. All right? This passage does not represent the apostle as one that walked after the flesh, but as one that had it greatly at heart not to walk so. All right, so they're saying that this passage is dealing with an apostle who, doesn't, who has in his heart not to walk after the flesh. He has it in his heart not to walk after the flesh. I think we can agree with that. He doesn't want to. And if these are those who abuse this passage, as they also do the other scriptures to their own destruction, yet serious Christians find cause to bless God for having thus provided for their support and comfort. He says some people have abused these passages. All right. We are not, because of the abuse of such, are, as are blinded by their own lust to find fault with the scripture or any just and well-warranted interpretation of it. All right? We're not going to find fault with the scripture. We're not going to find fault with any just interpretation of it. Now, if it's, if, if it's not a just interpretation, we may find fault with that. But he's like, we're not going to find fault with the scripture. We can't, if, even if the scripture causes us problems, we don't find fault with it. We just got to understand what to do with it. All right? I think that makes sense. Now, let's see where he's going to go with this. All right? And no man who is not engaged in this conflict can clearly understand the meaning of these words or rightly judge concerning this painful conflict which led the apostle uh, to basically condemn himself as a wretched man constrained to what he abhorred. In other words, unless you've truly felt this conflict, you can't understand this. You can't understand this passage unless you felt the conflict. Everyone in this room who claims to be a Christian, you should have felt this conflict. All the time. Every day. Okay? Every day we should feel it. Now, now obviously sometimes we don't, maybe we're not focused on the things of God enough and we're not feeling the conflict, but the conflict should be a constant reminder of what's really going on inside of us. It really, it, it should be. All right? He, now listen, he could not deliver himself And this made him the more fervently thankful to God for the way of salvation revealed through Jesus Christ. He could not deliver himself. 
which promised him in the end deliverance from this enemy. When is the deliverance promised? In the end. What do we call that? Glorification. Is the deliverance happened during sanctification? No. Does it, it, it happens in justification only in the sense of my, my position before God, but not in my practice. As long, as long as I have what? The conflict will remain as long as I have what? As long as I'm a human being with fleshly desires, fleshly hungers, I'm going to commit sin. Now somehow we've got to, we've got to, I know it's hard to put that into a, because we've been so taught that we just like, we just excuse it. Like, we're just like, it's almost like we're like, no, uh, we're, we're living out a godly life, we're living out a godly life, and we can't seem to process the reality of this. I'll give you an example where Christians have so much trouble, and, and it's sad that this is what, how the church handles it, all right? Here's someone who walks through the door. Let's say they, uh, they, claim, they, they, they uh, claim to be homosexual, right? Now, the way Christians handle it today is like, if you become a Christian, you will never struggle with it again. And anyone who struggles with it proves that they are never saved. Now, do you see how absurd that is? Homosexuality, if you, if you struggle with it, you're not saved. But how many of the Christian men sitting in any church struggle with pornography? Oh, oh that's okay. Uh, nobody wants to talk about that, right? Nobody wants to talk. Well, wait a minute. Why do you still struggle? And if you have the power of the Holy Spirit, why has any Christian man ever had any problem with pornography if they have the Holy Spirit? Can someone explain to me why? Because clearly the Holy Spirit doesn't give us some supernatural power over the problem. I'm mean, look at the statistics. It's pretty high with Christian men when they when they are given the opportunity to, uh, to answer a poll anonymously. The numbers are shocking. Well, why? Because they have a body. <laughs> and is it, does that excuse it? No. I'll make it very clear. Does that excuse it? No. Doesn't excuse it. Does that mean we shouldn't fight against it? No. But everyone has to go into it realizing what? What's going to be a reality of every person's Christian life? Sin. Look, the church has, we have to have a theology of failure. All we do is sell it, though. You've got the power. You're going to overcome it. You're going to overcome it. You're going to overcome it. And then everyone has their attempt to try to fix it, right? Lordship salvation. I understood what they were trying to do. I, I, I followed it for a long time, and I understood it. Hey, you can't have Christians just claiming to be saved and live any way they want. So what do we do? All right, here's the test. This proves if you're saved. Now, immediately, what starts happening? Now you're trying to prove an imputed righteousness via practical righteousness, which destroys the whole idea of an imputed righteousness. Now it becomes an infused righteousness. What led me to starting having problems, and this is crazy, what started leading me to having problems with lordship salvation was the study of Catholic theology. Because I started going, and, and when and, and you have Catholic teachers who are like, Lordship salvation is just Catholicism. And they're like, well, wait a minute, what, what's going on? Because it's true. How are you going to prove an imputed righteousness with a practical righteousness? Imputed means it doesn't, it's just imputed to my account. It doesn't make me righteous in practice. It just de- declares me to be righteous. Now, should I try to live it out? Yes. But I'm not going to do it perfectly. So if I'm not going to do it perfectly, then how can I pass the test? Well, then you have to say, well, you don't have to do it perfectly. You just got to try to, now, and then you ultimately make the test what? 
meaningless. And that's why people can sit in a lordship church, hear that test given to them week after week after week, and then convince themselves that I'm saved. But nobody's really, like the church, that the sermon that I've been reviewing on the podcast, on the Sermon on the Mount, telling his church that the Sermon on the Mount will prove if their repentance is genuine. And nobody in that church, you didn't hear anybody in the church wailing, weeping, Right? As soon as anyone heard that, they should have just said, stop the sermon, I need saved, I need to get saved right now. But nobody, everybody walked out of that church and went, I keep the sermon on the mount. What insanity is that? Who keeps the sermon on the mount? Can anyone tell me? Oh, yeah, Jesus did. Yeah, that's it. Thank goodness for that. Right? So I understand, you know, I understand what people try to do, but there's a problem, right? So, so let's go here. So, so I mean, let me make it very clear. What indwells every regenerate person? Sin. What indwells every regenerate person? Sin. So that means every regenerate person is going to do what? Sin. Right? And does, it, and does that sin mean it's never going to be a big one? <laughs> that's how we got to... That's, that's our standard, right? As long as it's not a big one. Okay. And, and, and well, who defines which one is big? Oh, we define which one is big. We define which one is big. So, so as long as you don't commit that when you're okay, but if you commit that when you're okay, that, you see the game we play, right? Okay, let me uh, go back and see where I am. All right. So he, he could not deliver himself, and this made him more fervent, fervently thankful to God for the way of salvation through Jesus Christ, which promised him in the end deliverance from this enemy. So then, says he, I myself, with my mind, my prevailing judgment, affections, and purposes as a regenerate man, by divine grace, serve and obey the law of God. But with the flesh, the carnal nature, the remains of depravity, I serve the law of sin, which wars against the law of my mind. Not serving it so as to live in it or to allow it, but as unable to free himself from it, even in his very best state and needing to look for help and deliverance out of himself. It is evident that he thanks God for Christ as our deliverance, as our atonement and righteousness in himself, and not because of any holiness wrought in us. Please, did you hear that? Read that again. It is evident that he thanks God for Christ as our deliverer, as our atonement and righteousness in himself, and not because of any holiness wrought in us. What's his hope? A righteousness that's in Christ, not a holiness that's in me. He knew of no such salvation and disowned any such title to it. He was willing to act in all points agreeable to the law in his mind and conscience, but was hindered by indwelling sin and never attained the perfection the law requires. What can, be, what can be deliverance for a man always sinful but the free grace of God? Let me read that again. What can be deliverance for a man who is always sinful? The free grace of God. And everyone here is always sinful. As uh, uh, the power of divine grace and of the Holy Spirit could, uh, could root out sin from our hearts. Uh, it says, the power of divine grace and of the Holy Spirit could root out sin from our hearts even in this life if divine wisdom had not otherwise thought fit. In other words, it could root out sin perfectly. God could. But divine wisdom saw to do it a different way. 
He didn't. And anyone who says that it does is a lie. Anyone who says that Christ came to make it possible for you to fulfill the law is wrong. It's just wrong. That pastor in, in, in uh, Council Bluffs, Iowa, he goes to Romans 8, and uh, Romans 8, look at verse 4. Romans 8, 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. He says that that's what Christ did. He, Christ made it possible that you can fulfill the righteousness of the law in your practical life. That goes against everything in Romans 7. How do, how do I fulfill the righteousness of the law in my life? In Christ. That's the only way. Could I ever fulfill the righteousness of the law in my life? What would, what would, what would, ha- what would cause me not to fulfill the righteousness of the law in my life? Breaking one, one law. Because if I break one law, how many am I guilty of? So I would be in a perpetual state of what? Law-breaking, lawlessness, not in fulfilling the righteousness of the law. I can't believe that that pastor would literally teach that. But you know how many pastors I've heard teach that? Well, what about Romans 7? Paul wouldn't... Did Paul fulfill the righteousness of the law in his life? Not according to Romans 7. Right. So the whole thing is crazy. So, uh, so this commentary says, it was not according to, to divine wisdom to remove sin from us. But it is suffered, listen, it is suffered. God allowed this to happen that Christians might constantly feel and understand thoroughly the wretched state from which divine grace saves them. Why did God choose to keep sin inside of us? So that we may never forget the wretched state from which we are saved. God. So according to this commentary, God has chosen to keep sin in you. He could have removed it. But he didn't. Why? Because he wants you to never forget that you are a wretched man, a wretched woman, wretched child, wretched person, whatever pronoun you want to use, you're wretched. Right? You're wretched. That's the reality. And if you don't feel that, then you've bought into a self-righteousness. Isn't that the problem with the Sadducees and the Pharisees? They couldn't see their own wretchedness. Why? Because they were convinced that they were keeping a law. Were they actually keeping the law? No, but they thought they were. You know how many Christians sit in a church thinking that they are keeping the law? That they can pass MacArthur's lordship test or Jonathan Edwards' lordship test and say, we, we do. No, you, if you think you're passing that test, you're a liar. Or a church in Iowa thinking that those people pass the Sermon on the Mount test? Nobody passes that test. No one. Everyone should say amen. amen. Right? So why did, why did he keep us? Why did he keep grace? I want you to hear it again. That, he, that, that Christians might constantly feel and understand thoroughly the wretched state from which divine grace saves them. Might be kept from trusting in ourselves. So let's go through this. Why did God keep sin in us? Number one, that we may constantly feel what? The wretched state the wretched state from which we were saved. Number two, to keep us from trusting in ourselves. To keep us from trusting in ourselves. And number three, we might ever hold all consolation and hope. Um, we, well, that we would find nothing but uh, consolation and hope in the free grace of God in Christ. That that's the only place we would turn. So we, we would never forget the wretched state from which we were saved. We would never trust in ourselves. And the only place we would look to for hope is where? The free grace of Jesus Christ. Now, why would I spend the time 
to go back and go through all of that. Why would I do that? Well, because as soon as we get to Romans 8, people almost tend to forget everything that we learn in chapter 7. Now, the first part starts off really good. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, stop right there. Now, we know that some, there's lots of textual variants. Some people say who walk after, not after the flesh, but after the Spirit shouldn't be there. But you know how some people read that? Hey, Bobby, do you want to know if, there, if there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus? Hey, Bobby, are, are you walking after the flesh? If you are, you're still under condemnation. Well, wait a minute. What did Paul just say in the previous verse? What's Paul doing? With his body, what is he doing? Sinning. So you can't turn around and say, well, wait a minute. The way you know you're saved is by not sin-. No. So how do we understand walk not, uh, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit? Where do I not walk after the flesh? In my mind. It's Romans 7, Right? Right, you see why I'm reiterating this? Verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ, Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. How has he made me free from the law of sin and death? He obviously has not made me free from the law of sin and death in my practical life. Where has he made me free? In my position, right? You see why we have to keep going back to 7? For what the law could not do that was weak through the flesh, God sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemns sin in the flesh. The law couldn't do it. Christ did it. How did Christ do it? Christ did it in himself. In Christ, do I walk after the flesh? No. In Christ, do I walk after the spirit? Yes. Okay. In Christ. Everybody got that? All right. Next, uh, verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. How is the righteousness of the law fulfilled in us? In Christ. In Christ. That's the only answer. Romans 8.1, how, how is there no condemnation? In Christ. How do I not walk after the flesh? In Christ. How do I fulfill the righteousness of the law? In Christ. And then verse 5, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. Now that is true. Those that are in the flesh are going to mind the things of the flesh. Who's in the flesh? Everyone. Who's in the spirit? The same people who are Christians and we might, and that, what, that, isn't that what Paul established in Romans 7.25? You see why you have to keep going back to Romans 7.25? Everyone gets to Romans 8, and this is what they do. This is almost how they do it. Paul did not know how to fix this flesh problem. In chapter 8, he gives you the solution, the Holy Spirit. Now you don't have the problem with the flesh anymore. You can now overcome it. I think that's, a, I think that's horrible preaching. Because 7.25, he doesn't say that. He, he's, he, he makes it very clear that he's still living that way. Right? So in other words, when I get to 8, how do I interpret 8? In light of Romans 7.25. So when we go through all these things that the Holy Spirit supposedly does for us, what can we not? The Holy Spirit does do things in me, but what does it not ultimately do? Remove sin or give me the power over sin because I'm going to continue to sin. 
And why am I going to continue to sin? God in his wisdom has kept sin in me so that I will fill the wretchedness that I've been saved from. I will never trust in myself and I will find only hope and consolation, not in me, not in my righteousness, not in me passing MacArthur's test, Jonathan Edwards' test, but me trusting and finished work of Jesus Christ alone. So whatever we believe about what the Holy Spirit does, and we've looked at a number of them, and, as we, and we'll have to walk our way through this, there's some passages there that people say, see, the Holy Spirit gives you the power to stop. 725 doesn't teach that. So I'm not going to make Romans 8 contradict Romans 7. Romans 8 has to fit with Romans 7, and Romans 7 t- tells me that as a regenerate person, sin is still in me, and I'm still going to sin. Period. And again, what's my hope? Imputed righteousness, imputed righteousness, imputed righteousness. I, and can I prove imputed righteousness with practical righteousness? No, because that would require an infused righteousness, which goes against everything we supposedly teach. Now, am I saying we should not seek to live out our godly life? No, we should. But how, is there a way that I can test the godliness of your life to determine if you were justified by faith? There's no way to test it. Because it would always be what? What are you always going to do in your test? Fall short, fall short, fall short, fall short. So then I have to find some way to grade on a curve. Well, okay, I mean, at least most of your life you went that way. So then the only way I'm ever going to know if I'm saved is when I get to the very end of my life. And then I supposedly look back. And what am I now looking to? To me, what am I not looking to? And if I'm looking to my practical righteousness for security of my salvation, I'm never going to have security. I have to look to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Or I've got to just give up this whole Protestant doctrine of justification and go back to the Catholic Church, which teaches an infused righteousness. And if you don't cooperate with that infused righteousness, then you lose it, and then you have to find a way to get it back. Well, we, we supposedly reject that, and then yet we teach it. So, so wait, and I understand why. We'll make sure, very clear, I understand why. But I just want you to realize, I want you, I know we took time to do this, but I just want you to never forget Romans 7.25. All right? If you forget Romans 7.25, you're going to, you're going to just, you're just going to go, you're going to go crazy here. All right? You're going to, you've got to interpret Romans 8 in light of that. You've got to interpret Romans 8 in light of that. Does that make sense? Right? That's why I wanted to back up and, and do that again. Now, next week, we'll just start work, working through Romans 8 again. Well, we'll finish our list of the 10 things that supposedly the Holy Spirit does for us. We've already rejected two of them just outright um, because that just makes sense. And some of those, and one of them we're kind of, we, we have problems with, but at least one of those are clearly outlined in Romans 8. And we'll have to look at it, all right? So we'll stop right there. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. lot of very important concepts difficult concepts, hard concepts, but we have to do everything in our power, Lord, as Christians, that if we want to protect the idea of of not living in sin and just accepting it, we can't fix that problem with destroying the very gospel that we preach. We have to find a way to, to balance it out in a meaningful way. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,